Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. Yes, you are. Today's buzz, thinking. Hmm, a lot to think about. Let's get started. Rene Descartes first published what turned out to be an enduring philosophical observation back in 1637. He only lived to age 53, so this was middle life for him. Here we go. Let's have the Latin version first. Cogito ergo sum. Let's have the French version next. Je pense, donc je suis. And here's the English for those of you uninitiated. I think, therefore I am. Hmm. Well, if Descartes were alive today, he might be more concerned with how well he thinks, not simply that he does think at all. That's a different wrinkle. Yes, it's something to think about. I wonder how he would have translated the following terms that are in use today. Background knowledge, thinking strategies, habits of mind, criteria for judgment, interesting vocabulary. Yes, thinking well matters so much today that recently the most in-demand jobs require applicants to be proficient in, wait for it, critical thinking, in addition to a ton of other requisite skills. So if you were job hunting right now, take this pop quiz, if you were job hunting right now and the recruiter asked you to rate your critical thinking skills how would you score on a scale of 1 to 10? Hmm. I have a panel of experts who are going to help us figure out how your critical thinking skills might score and how you can improve them because they are critical indeed. Let's get started with our panelists. Hey, the experts speak. First up on the panel is Dr. Mark Battersby. He's the founder of the British Columbia Association for Critical Thinking Research and Instruction. That's a long name. And here is the quote that Mark sent me. Learning to be learning to think more critically involves developing practices that lead to more carefully thought out evidence-based decisions and judgments. Packing a lot into that one sentence. Dr. Mark Battersby, welcome back. We spoke a couple months ago. How are you today? I'm good, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to me about your quote. Well, let me talk about Descartes. Um, Okay. I wish you would. He was uh, arguably one of the great uh, critical thinkers. He wrote uh, pieces called like Rules for the Mind. He said, uh, doubt everything to check out, uh, make evidence-based decisions. So, uh, yeah, he, he could be a, a godfather of critical thinking. So it's very nice that you picked up on his quote. I'm delighted that you like it. As a matter of fact, I added that to my notes about 45 minutes ago because it, we use that quote so much, and it's one of my favorites, Je pense, don't je suis. So I looked it up, and uh, there's some, some question on the Internet. Some people think it was somebody else and not Descartes, but we know it was. No, I don't he, believe that. So right. I don't believe that either. So, Mark, talk to me. You've got so much interesting information packed into your quote, carefully thought out, evidence-based decisions and judgments. Let's take it apart a little bit at a time. Evidence-based decisions, judgments, talk to me. Well, the, uh, I guess the uh, contrast here, and often that's what you need to do, is, is making this, these quick, uh, intuitive, gut-based decisions, which uh, have a place uh, when the lions appear, you know, we've got to make a quick decision and run. But when we're investing millions of dollars, we have to really carefully think stuff out and uh, get the evidence. Uh, and there's a kind of process, again, Descartes was uh, very aware of that. There's a sort of process you can go through that will minimize um, errors and maximize uh, evidence, and uh, we try to teach that in our book and on our courses. Um, 
So I guess one of the most important things, I think, uh, for evidence-based decision-making is actually being willing to pursue evidence that might be contrary to your decision. There's a real problem with what they call confirmation bias. We tend to look for evidence that supports our point of view and not contrary evidence, and that's often where we get blindsided because uh, we haven't been looking to see what uh, could go wrong or what uh, counts against us. So if I had to give one bit of advice, it would be check out the uh, counter evidence, the counter examples before you uh, plunge ahead. Interesting. And Mark, before we go on with the rest of the panel, I have a question for you, what I call level setting. I'm sure a lot of people listening are thinking, well, computers, we've got them. We're feeding them all the information. What do you think we're paying so much and putting so much effort into all of our data and all of our applications and all of our processes? Isn't the computer going to do that critical thinking for me? Duh. I'm adding the duh in the end uh. there. Mark, well, how do we, how do we balance that? The human mind, the, the squeezed out, the pushed out data that's supposed to come with analytics. So who's right? Who's wrong? And who's going to do the critical thinking better? The person or the machine? Well, the machine is a tool. Um, you have to have theses. You have to have a hypothesis to uh, use the data. You can't. The data just doesn't tell you uh, anything. I'm sure Emily will uh, explain that in some detail. Uh, you've you've got to have something you're looking for. You've got to have, and you've got to be willing to also look for the counter evidence. I mean, you, the uh, in the world of Google, I mean, now Google will actually feed you only information you want to see. I mean, you actually have to work against the Google presumptions in order to get that uh, counter-information and to get a a robust uh, view of of an issue that you're looking into. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate it. Good start to our topic. Let's bring on your colleague, Dr. Sharon Balin, past president of the Association for Informal Logic and Critical Thinking. And by the way, those of you who are listening, this is part two of a critical thinking show we did several months ago, and Mark and Sharon are back, plus two new panelists. So we'll get to them in a minute. But Sharon, the quote you sent me is as follows. Critical thinkers are more committed to the process of being reasonable than to any particular view or position. I find that fascinating. Sharon, I know you're not feeling well, so thank you so much for joining us anyway. I'm glad you made that judgment call. Uh, Sharon, talk to us about your quote in as few words as you want to. Okay, thanks. uh, The kind of processes that Mark um, was talking about are really important. That is, it's important for people to learn to develop the abilities to critique arguments, to make judgments, and so on. But I think we need to focus not just on critical thinking, but on the critical thinker. That is the person. And someone who's a critical thinker has not just these skills, but certain kinds of attitudes. That is, they're committed to coming up with the best judgment, the best evidence to being reasonable. And they're not just using their critical thinking to defend their particular positions, which which we often do. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, Sharon. Good, good addition to what Mark introduced. And let's turn to our third panelist, a newcomer to the show. Her name is Shirley Calla. She is currently a master's student in creativity, collaboration, and critical thinking. And she has a long background in the fashion industry, in, in merchandising. Shirley Calla sent me the following quote from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking, from 2005. Here's Shirley's quote. I think the task of figuring out How to combine the best of conscious deliberation and instinctive judgment is one of the greatest challenges of our time. Shirley Calla, welcome. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for joining us. So tell us, interesting quote from Gladwell. Uh, Why did you select this quote and apply it to our topic, please? 
I think when I originally uh, read his book, I thought it was quite timely. And then in going through the master's program that I'm currently involved in, it really resonated for me. Um, Industry is moving at such a fast pace, and uh, I think we have to be very deliberate and accurate, but also instinctual about the decisions that we make. And I think Malcolm Gladwell really captured that quite well um, with his anecdotes in his, in his book, Blink, and so I thought it was quite relevant. Okay, and Shirley, uh, you are a student, and some of the terms, I must tell you, some of the terms you recognized, obviously, when I asked how Descartes would have said in Latin or in French, background knowledge, thinking strategies, habits of mind, criteria for judgment, I lifted these, and you know from the notes you sent me before the show, this sounds like it's a very tough subject to study. How do you do it? Just give us a little insight into how are you a master's student of critical thinking? Do you sit around and talk about, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that? Do you diagram, and I'm not making fun, do you diagram your thoughts like we used to diagram sentences back in the day? Mm-hmm. How, how, do you, how do you study this? What do you, mm-hmm. How do you prove that you have learned? How do you get graded on it? Just tell us briefly. Mm-hmm. No, it's been a very interesting process, actually, and um, I think... Um, you know, those of us that were attracted to the program um, had that thought process. Uh, we thought we had developed critical thinking. And then when you actually get into um, the construct of the book and the process that uh, Dr. Balin and Dr. Pattersby have worked on, you start to see that, in fact, you uh, uh, can fall prey to fallacies, that you do need to be conscious at all times of the other person's opinion in dialogue, that there is a framework. And you talked about a diagram. I think one of the most helpful pieces was the development of a a pros and cons chart, if you will, and an argument summary. And then you can capture your objections and responses. And I would have to say that was probably one of the most powerful tools in uh, struggling with large, large issues that had a lot of research involved in them. And it really assisted with breaking it down into smaller parts so that then you felt confident with your reasoned judgment at the end. Thank you, Shirley. Very interesting. Uh, pros and cons. Question. One more question before we turn to our fourth panelist. Do you get impatient with people who don't <laughs> adopt these processes? People who just say, yeah, that's the best one, or yeah, I think I'll go in that direction because I don't know, it's Monday and the sky is purple today. How do you, do you, do you look down your academic ivory tower slope and say, hmm, they're not really thinking very well, are they? How do, how do you handle dealing with, I'll say it, normal people, excuse me? Go ahead, Shirley. (laughs) Well, it's interesting, actually, because I think I was probably most critical of myself and my own technique as I learned more Ah. of um, this thoughtful approach to thinking and to um, debating topics in dialogue. And actually what it did was make me more uh, self-aware of some of the things that I was falling prey to. So, excuse me, my own fallacies and my own beliefs and my own biases. So I think probably um, what ends up happening is you're almost more critical of yourself because you're analyzing how you're approaching conversation, how you're approaching difficult topics that you might have to come to a conclusion on. And I think that that helps the other person to fall in step, if you will, with a more thoughtful discussion that crosses all of the um, points that you need to address to come to some sort of conclusion. So I would have to say the opposite. I was probably more critical of myself going through the process, realizing how much I needed to learn. 
And I have to say thank you for sharing that. And I mean, I mean that in the most sincere way. That's a great point of view and, and great about the introspection of how was I thinking rather than how are others. Good point. Thank you, Shirley, and welcome okay. to the panel. And let's go to our fourth, last but definitely not least panelist. It's Emily Moy, and she's a senior director of HANA, Cloud Product Marketing at SAP. And here's the quote from Emily. She says, in this age of information overload and demand for instant response and gratification, it's even more important to have good critical thinking skills so you can make good decisions. That's what we're talking about. Emily, welcome. How are you? Good. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you very much for joining us. So talk to me about your quote. I like it. It kind of synthesizes everything we're going to be talking about in the rest of the show. So go ahead, Emily. Sure. So um, one of the things I see on a day-to-day basis when I work with customers using our software is that there's this constant need for businesses and nonprofits or education um, sectors to, to really try to align everyone in an organization to a common set of goals, right? So by doing that, there's just so much information that's being captured, and everyone wants to be able to make sure that they structure the way processes are run in a company, how things are being done in a company or in an organization. So there's just this constant need to make sure everyone's on the same page. And so all this information is being bombarded at everyone, and everyone comes at it from a different perspective with a different background. You might be in HR, you might be in sales, you could be in marketing, but how are you all coming together? so that the company or the organization can progress in their goals. So there's just so much information, and everyone wants to know what the answer is now. So for many of us, it becomes overwhelming, and you want to make sure that there's some structure there. And for those of us who aren't used to having some structure, aren't used to thinking in a way um, that they can evaluate, analyze, and process the information in a way that makes sense, it becomes very challenging. So I think as time progresses, I'm just seeing this growing need for everyone to be able to learn how to think, to understand war, the, the structure that, um, be, it, that's being pushed on them, and so that those skills become even more important um, today than they have ever become, um, and, and, and also that they can make really good, sound decisions. Emily, that's so perfect what you're saying in regard to the question I asked Dr. Mark Battersby at the start of this part of the show about computers thinking for us versus people thinking for ourselves, perhaps it perhaps uh, boosted by the information we get from the computer and then having to think critically. You are Senior Director of HANA Cloud Product Marketing at SAP, and we're talking about high-speed processing. We're talking about in-memory computing, and we're talking about wow in terms of getting things done, right, crunching the data that would have taken eons to do, and now it's a couple of seconds or less than that. Emily, just your thoughts on the, I know the instant gratification, but the idea that computers are doing the thinking versus people. How do you sit do you sit on the fence in that, or are you definitely on the people have to really learn how to think and don't rely on computers? Where do you, where do you stand? Well, it's a chicken and egg. So okay. I would say, say 15 years ago, I saw that a lot of companies were happy just to have reports, to be able to see information. Oh, how did they do on their marketing campaigns? How were sales? Just to get that information was challenging, right? A lot of times you, people use, see, that, you see people use Excel to get that information. Today... Everyone wants to know that information in real time. And you can't 
um, get that information and make sense of it without people being able to construct the right algorithms to understand exactly how to view that information and what's important about that information. So someone um, has to be able to think about that, um, apply those algorithms, put that into the computer for everyone else to be able to digest it, to know what's relevant for them. So I think it's very important that um, the people understand what they're doing, design those algorithms, put that into the computer before anyone else can digest it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And now I'm going to ask probably the most difficult question the four of you will have to answer during the rest of the show, and it is, what's in your cup today? Because this is Coffee Break with Game Changers. So let's start with Dr. Mark Battersby. Mark, what are you drinking right now, or what do you wish you were drinking? Well, I just finished uh, my, my third uh, long espresso that I make on my uh, little machine here at home. But I, I, wanna, I was thinking about uh, what would be a good coffee story, and uh, I, I think I associate coffee, as I'm sure many people do, with uh, getting up first thing in the morning. And what I do first thing in the morning after my coffee is I go for a swim. And uh, where I swim is uh, uh, there's a large... Uh, uh, because Vancouver has a large uh, Chinese ethnic community, and I swim, I would say, over half the people are Chinese. And my wife came up with this idea of learning to say hello in Cantonese and Mandarin, and it's mm-hmm. totally changed our experience at the pool. So I wanted to share that with people, that uh, we live in a multicultural world now, and uh, at your coffee breaks and whatnot, just knowing to say uh, dosan or ni hao, uh, it has changed the whole relationship. So it's just something I want to share with people. I know we live in a very multicultural world, and it turns out to be an incredible uh, icebreaker with people. That's charming. And, and Mark, I would venture to say that you made a, a critical judgment there that you needed to learn something to improve your experience and to no, improve no, the I experience. No, I didn't. My wife did. She's yeah. a very good critical thinker. <laughs> we, behind every good critical thinker is a wife who thinks even more critically. We'll let that one go. Okay. okay. Thank you, Mark, very much. Dr. Sharon Balin. Sharon, what are you drinking? I'm sure it has something soothing in it because I know you don't feel well. What are you drinking today? Right. I'm just drinking water at the moment, but um, my, my husband and I are very serious about the quality of our coffee, and we had our favorite brand. We were very committed to it. And one day, our son's partner, who was working for a company that, among other things, um, imported fair trade coffee, brought us some of her, the, their coffee. And we felt like we were faced with this very serious dilemma because on the one hand, there was family relationships and being ethical. On the other hand, there was our coffee and our, our, the, our commitment to our good coffee. And then we tasted this coffee that she brought, and it was wonderful. Oh. So our dilemma just dissolved. Be nice that all dilemmas in life dissolve quite that easily, but we could be, we could have our good coffee and have good family relationships and be ethical all at the same time. Oh, that's a good package, and I think that's an example of criteria for judgment. You were looking at the the relationship and the loyalty factor, and not. How good is this stuff? And it was. Changed the whole picture. Thank you, Sharon. Shirley Callow, what's in your cup today? Oh, good morning. I, um, I really like to look for the um, sensory explosion, if you will, when it comes to my coffee. So I'm really interested in uh, going to small coffee shops where 
There's maybe somebody who takes the time to do maybe with my latte a lovely pattern on the top of the coffee so that you have this visual experience as well as you are tasting this lovely rich coffee and you have the warmth of it. So I really like a sensory experience and the visual part is huge for me because my background, my love is design and and merchandising Mm -hmm. and so visual things really stimulate and enhance the taste of my coffee. So oftentimes there's a local coffee shop where they'll do a lovely leaf pattern on the top, the combination of the milk and the coffee and it's quite lovely, it's really pretty and it's the time that they take to do that for your coffee. It just is, it's a nice touch. Very nice. Thank you for sharing that. I can picture the leaf. I've had a guest on one of our previous shows who shared something very similar to that, and it just makes you stop and say, oh, that is nice. <laughs> that is, is nice. lovely. <laughs> it is. And Emily, Emily, am I pronouncing your name right? Mui, is that the correct pronunciation? Yes, it's Mui. And I am Chinese, so I appreciate that, Mark. Um, Dr. Batsby was able to uh, say um, good morning in Cantonese and Mandarin quite uh, effectively. So thank you. He did. He did. So, Emily, what are you drinking today? Well, I am drinking water. I did leave um, the house early this morning so I can get here on time and be on this talk show. Uh, And so I've already had my cup of coffee, which, of course, I have my favorite brand. But I think no matter what, I always start my day with water. And this morning when I came to the office, um, this is my second big cup of water. And unfortunately, the water um, filter was broken so i'm drinking oh. unfiltered water but oh uh, <laughs> but we will do our best to protect you we'll all gather around and <laughs> make a circle i think you'll survive but, but what i wanted to say was that water definitely is something that i just treasure so much i mean i, I don't think we stop to think about it until um you know in california in, we're really faced with this drought right now, and um, and I just start to think more and more about how important water is. I mean, I tell my kids that every time when they have a tummy ache or if they don't feel well, I say, well, you need to drink more water. So, you know, I think you kind of take for granted that water is really just, it's magical. It's, it's, it makes your day. It keeps you going. Um, and it just also reminds me of um, my dad, who grew up in a small village in China, and last year um, he took us to this village. And there is no um, running water in that town, in this village. Mm. And he was um, able to put water, give them running water about 20 years ago by putting in pipes, putting the infrastructure. So he donated money to the town, to the village. So he was showing us that in order to get water, they would bring up these buckets up into the hills, to the wells in the hills every day to bring down water. So... For me, I mean, just to think about water, I just think it's the most magical experience every time I get to drink water. And I know it sounds a little bit uh, cheesy, but... <laughs> but if you think it, about Not all at things, all. Actually, it sounds anti- anti-cheesy. <laughs> it's the opposite of cheesy. I think the panel would agree. Emily, thank you so much. Guess what? I'm going to give you all a chance to sip on whatever you're drinking because we're going to take our first break. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers. If you're keeping track, let's see. Well, today is Wednesday, June 18th, 2014, and this is episode number 139. Yeah, we've been doing this for a while. We're here on the Business Channel, and I'm very privileged to be speaking with a wonderfully charming and insightful and critically thinking panel. I'm going to learn a lot from them. It's Dr. Mark Battersby, Dr. Sharon Balin, Shirley Calla, and Emily Moy. And we'll be right back after the break. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Bread out.
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap To speak with Bonnie D. Graham and her guests, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag, pound sign, S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Here we are, very appropriately, je pense donc je suis, and I am here, and so are my guests. We're talking today about critical thinking. This is part two, and I've subtitled this episode, To Tell the Truth. The question is, whose truth is it? So we're going to start off our roundtable with Dr. Mark Battersby. He's going to start off one of his notes, a talking point Mark sent me, and then we're going to ask uh, Sharon and Shirley and Emily to chime in. So, Mark, let's kick off this. We're going to do a roundtable for about a half hour. We've got your seatbelts on, I hope. Mark, you told me before the show, an important aspect of learning to think critically is to learn to determine, here's the kicker, how reliable are our sources of information. I would add to that parenthetically, OMG, they're everywhere. You mentioned Google in the opening. You don't know what you're getting, Wikipedia, who wrote it, who didn't, who critically reviewed it, edited it. So Mark, talk to me. How do you determine reliability? It seems like a gargantuan task. Talk to me. Well, it depends a bit on the, the subject matter. Uh, um, I was thinking of Emily's situation where the companies are getting uh, data fed through their computers to them and trying to make decisions based on that. And you have to make sure in that case, um, for example, are you surveying the right people? If, if uh, uh, in your marketing strategy are the people who are in the uh, intended market group, are those the ones from whom you're collecting data? So there's a whole question about using data for predictions, about whether it's the, uh, the data that's uh, sampling the relevant to people. So that's one question in that kind of domain. If you mm-hmm. turn, on, on the other hand, to more a scientific domain where you're getting um, that sort of information, there, there, are, there is a very good uh, rule of thumb, but that's all it is. It's not perfect, which is what is the scientific consensus? Um, it's sometimes tricky to figure that out, but uh, if you're a diligent researcher, you could go out there and, and see and. We've had these huge debates, as you know, about, for example, global warming, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's a very significant uh, scientific consensus, and yet people have exploited the odd uh, dissident, um, uh, over-exploited. Because the best we can do as lay people is is go with this scientific consensus unless we have some conspiracy theory or something. So uh, when you're Googling uh, and you're getting a point of view, 
then you want to uh, see is, is this in fact reflective of the consensus. And one of the things I do uh, recommend to my students in that case is uh, check out the dissidents and see if uh, they're making some uh, plausible case, whether there's people who are supporting them. Uh, and if, if not, then you, you go with that scientific consensus. So it, 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 it sounds like it's a bit difficult, but in fact, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's not. It's often quite possible through what are called meta-analysis of documents that serve, that summarize uh, research to find out very quickly where, where people are uh, on a particular point of view. It doesn't mean it's always going to be true. Science is a live, uh, it's a live enterprise, and the people change their mind and consensus shift. But as a layperson, it's just about the best we can do in trying to find reliable information. Thank you, Mark. Before I ask Sharon to chime in, one quick question for you, Mark. What we're talking about, this, this critical thinking skill, is this something that will benefit everyone, even if they don't work in the high-tech industry, even if they work, I don't know, if they work in fashion, Shirley is studying critical thinking, and she's in, in uh, merchandising and fashion and design. Uh, will, this, will this impact teachers? Will this impact um, anybody who, a, a boy with a paper route, well, a comedian who's on stage telling stories, uh, somebody who writes for a newspaper, somebody who uh, does, I don't know, talk radio? Who benefits from these skills in critical thinking, Mark? Well, I think I'll leave it to uh, to Shirley to talk about the fashion industry. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think um, one example that Sharon, I think I think she may have given it last time, which is uh, vaccination, big contentious uh, issue in certain places, and mm -hmm. it's proving to be a disaster at this point in the United States, among other places, for having epidemics because people were not being at all uh, critical thinkers about the information. And 20 minutes on the Internet would have shown you that there is not good, inf there's not good arguments against vaccination. Um, so there it is as parents, as individuals, as people living in a community, uh, critical thinking would have helped them immediately. Thank you very much. Sharon Bale, and I have to mention you're also a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. Sharon, what are your thoughts on how to determine the reliability of our information sources, please? Well, I think uh, this is particularly an important skill today when so much of our information comes from the Internet. I mean, our students write papers. They want to look something up. They find something on the Internet. It looks good. You can put up a, a website that looks mm -hmm. really neat and you, and it looks very credible. But it's really important to be able to look at the website and, and to um, determine its reliability. I mean, we found this wonderful example of a, a, a website that looks, you know, it looks very, very credible, and it's called Help Save, Save the Endangered Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank God so, for long URLs, right? <laughs> right, right. But, you know, if you, you, you need to look beyond the, the looks of the website, and you can ask questions about it. Who, who's put this up? I mean, you can investigate who, who are, who, where, what's the source of information for the website. Is it biased? Are they trying to sell you something? Um, what, what's the motivation for the website? Um, uh, are, there, are there footnotes? Are they just making claims without um, backing them up, et cetera? So there are, there are ways to evaluate the credibility of websites, and I think that is a hugely important skill today when so much of people's research is done on the Internet. 
Thank you, Sharon. Shirley Kell, I have to mention that you have held numerous fashion design and apparel merchandising roles with brands like Corette, Notables, Calvin Klein, Sport, and you were uh, the EVP of merchandise and design with the brand Jax, J-A-X, so credential background, validating who you are. So, Shirley, your thoughts on validating, determining the reliability of sources of information from your perspective in design and fashion? Mm, very interesting. Um, actually, um, I did do an inquiry in uh, in Dr. Balin's course, actually, um, that was really revealing for me because um, I titled it Should Western Apparel Companies Source Production in Third World Countries? And I think anybody who um, picks up a newspaper or listens to the news, we're all too familiar with the horrifying stories of uh, some of these incidences in factories in third world and developing countries that unfortunately are making garments. And it's something that is really, really critical in our industry to be aware of. And uh, Mm -hmm. as a a professor myself with my students, it's important that um, we uh, talk about this. And it's such a complex issue. And so I pursued this question in Dr. Balin's course. And going back to credible sources, it was really, really important um, to do thorough, exhaustive research to find the accurate information. There are so many biases, and, and, and I guess in that case, rightly so, when you read just from the source, let's say, of a newspaper uh, or news coverage, um, it's going to be inflammatory because some of these situations are so horrific. But going back to Places like WTO, um, the Workers' Rights Consortium, um, did a paper uh, for the Center for American Progress in July 2013. So I collected some of my data from those sources on things like um, uh, fair labor and uh, fair wages, um, statistics on uh, what is happening in terms of uh, the garment industry in these third world countries. And then I guess the the second point that um, Dr. Battersby brought up was <clears throat> about the change right now in um, that I'm seeing is in my recent research of education programs is a, a very strong move towards um, the idea of thinking about thinking. Um, a lot of mm-hmm. course descriptions, a lot of business ethics, a lot of um, uh, business courses and all types of programs are bringing in courses that are specific to whatever term they might be using. But the word critical, the term critical thinking comes up a lot. Um, but it really leads into all of these ethical decisions that when you are in industry, you have to make. When I was working with the Kelwood brands, um, I was responsible for sourcing out of third world countries. And, um, of course, you were a good business person and negotiated a good price. But I think in doing it now, I would probably be asking more of the difficult questions um, to ensure that all of the standards are in place so that um, there is uh, uh, fair labor codes and workers' rights are being uh, definitely, definitely upheld. Thank you, Shirley. Emily Moy, let's hear from you. Thoughts on reliability. How do you determine your sources? What do you think? Well, um, reliability, um, when I think of the data that um, is sometimes given to me as, as a product marketing person, I'm constantly looking at how, you know, how our product sales doing. And, and I would have to say sometimes, you know, you do question whether or not that data was um, captured correctly, if someone entered that information correctly. Um, you know, so I think, you know, making sure that you have those um, 
you're able to ask those questions requires that you know you you have to have the experience having um, you know looked at these these numbers these metrics before and understanding what's going on out there the sales cycle and how customers are buying so um, you know that comes with experience but of course having that that structure there to um, to, that truly helps you. But in terms of reliability, you know, you, you end up questioning a lot about whether or not that data is reliable. And, and, and when you find out it is, then it's great. And I see that with many of our customers um, because if that information is not reliable, they're not going to use it. And so IT, their IT departments always, always very cautious about the information that they're giving to their business users. If, if it's wrong, I mean, it makes them look bad, <laughs> especially if you have to present that information to the board um, about plans or about um, uh, sales goals for the year and achievements. And if that information isn't correct, you're done. <laughs> so from, from that perspective, it's really important to question the source of the data, how that data was um, was gathered, um, and of course the understanding of how how the business works, the processes work, really makes sure that that information is reliable. Thank you. Go ahead, Mark, please. Yeah, I want to add something to Emily. I was thinking, one of the things, I'm talking about marketing surveys now, not uh, data about sales, but uh, trying to, uh, when you test test products and you're doing marketing survey, um, one of the big challenges in surveying now is is, uh, people's refusal to uh, answer the phone or answer the questions. So mm-hmm. the, one of the questions, things I suggest is you always want to ask your uh, people with their surveys, how many, not, how many refusals to answer uh, did you get? What is this, 10% of the people you phoned or 20%? Um, it's one of the sort of dirty secrets of uh, surveying, and it means that your surveys are almost certainly going to be biased in certain ways. And mm-hmm. I think that's uh, one of the questions I'm sure Emily would agree that you really want to ask uh, your supplier of information. I totally agree with you, Mark, on that point. And it's and you know, being in marketing, sometimes we work with research firms, and I have to admit that I can be guilty <laughs> of the types of questions that I would want the market research firm to ask, um, because you do kind of have. Um, it goes back to the point you made up, made earlier, where you have kind of made a conclusion, and you want the results and the questions to back up right. what you already believe. Right, right, your hypothesis. So um, that does happen a lot, and um, and and it's a little bit disturbing. So you do kind of have to question what you're reading. And, and it reminds me of one other thing that I, um, you know, something that you don't really normally think about is when you read a lot of research on a certain foods that um, can uh, can stave off cancer mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. these things. When you think about it, to do that research is actually not very easy because how can you create this control environment of what people eat and all the different foods and chemicals and things that they're exposed to. So if you really put it on that critical thinking hat, you can understand and see that, well, maybe that research you're reading about, oh, eating more pomegranate seeds is going to help, mm-hmm. you know, um, help you lower your blood pressure. Is that really going to work or is it something else that happened or is it your genetic disposition, right? So you start questioning things like that. So um, I would have to say, yeah, <laughs> it's good to question. It's good to have those thinking skills um, to question those surveys and, and research that you actually come across. 
Thank you, Emily and Mark. And I, I want to bring the perfect segue from this part of the thread into a talking point from Dr. Sharon Balin. I'd like to bring up, just continuing on, on this conversation, Sharon said, to develop critical thinkers, you need to create a climate that encourages it. And here are the three points that Sharon says it involves. Number one, promoting respectful, constructive critique. That's our operative word. Number two, appreciating dissent. And I think that's, that's the segue, Emily and Mark of asking questions and promoting collaborative reasoning. All very good points. Sharon, can you just comment on this, please, I, uh, just for a minute, and then we'll have the others comment too? Sure. Um, the In order to get people who are critical thinkers, that is, uh, with certain kinds of attitudes and um, who don't just use critical thinking in order to criticize other people's points of view, there are certain aspects that it's important to promote. And one is critique, as you picked up on the notion of critique. I mean, critical thinking is about largely about critique. Um, and But the critique has to be done in a certain sort of way. I mean, it's easy. To, if you attack, people will defend, and you're not going to advance and, and uh, do good collaborative thinking. So you need to promote um, critique, but that's constructive and that's respectful of the other people, respecting the other person, but perhaps cr- criticizing the view. Um, and dissent is hugely important, and it's not always encouraged in certain kinds of organizational contexts. I mean, we we're all we all tend to be subject to groupthink. Other people think it, so we get mm-hmm. caught up in that, and we all agree. Or if someone in authority says something, we all agree. And yet, the dissent, the person who asks. The dissenter, the person who asks the questions, is often plays a really important role in advancing the critical thinking in any kind of a group. Sharon, I'm thinking of juries. It just popped into my mind. We've all seen enough Broadway shows or movies. A jury having to deliberate in a closed environment where they come with their biases and their opinions and their experiences and their training or lack thereof, and they're given a, a certain amount of knowledge and so-called facts from each side, and each side comes with great prejudice into the courtroom. Uh, anybody on the panel want to comment on that in terms of dissent? We all hear about that one dissenting juror who makes them stay for 15 days and they can't see their kids and they can't go home and blah, blah, blah. So uh, anybody want to comment on how critical thinking plays a role in jury deliberations? Mark, Shirley, Emily, Sharon? Well, of course, you're thinking of, I assume, among other things, 12 angry men. Yes, I am. That's, yes, right, indeed. But, you know, um, the, the, one of the, uh, the coiner of the phrase, I think, when Sharon will correct me if I got this wrong, but Bob Ennis um, uh, came up with this term critical thinking. He, he did, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he served on a jury, and uh, he was very impressed. The thing about juries is that people don't, are asked to deliberate about something which they don't have a vested interest in. Um, that's very different than the corporate situation where you're, you know, you're concerned about your firm or you're concerned about your uh, part of the firm, your or, your suborganization or something. But in juries, you're asked to think about something that you don't have. And, and, and admittedly, people come with prejudices, but it's it's not something that you're going to profit from or lose from. And uh, he was very impressed with the deliberative process. I think uh, our juries maybe are underrated uh, as uh, generally, and not always, of course, uh, really sensible deliberative process because they have that what uh, term which has fallen into misuse of the word disinterested. They're not biased. Uh, they don't come with a personal interest in the outcome. Mm-hmm. And something Good else point. about the structure of, of trials is yes. you're, you're hearing both sides. So you're not just exposed to one side. You're getting strong arguments on both sides. You're, you're getting exposed to the alternatives as well as, as uh, 
I'm, you know, you're getting the reasons on both sides. Thank you very much. I, I want to move where we're at. You know what? I'm thinking we're not going to take our last break because we have so much territory to cover here. So if it's okay, uh, you can all take a sip of something while I'm asking the next question. I want to move to, Shirley, an interesting point, and I, I wove this into my last comment to the panel. You say awareness of your own biases, and you're reflecting on your experience in the apparel industry as a designer and merchandiser, and the point you made before is uh, of your paper is should you do business with third-world countries. Uh, biases, biases, prejudices, uh, sticking to it because it's what you believe in or what you used to believe in. Shirley, how powerful is this? Is it a struggle? Critical thinking versus what you really want to do, but mm, the facts aren't quite there. How do you handle that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a great question. I think that um, um, the first part is the most difficult part, and that is actually acknowledging that you have biases. (laughs) And it's quite interesting because I think so many of us feel that we are evolved and that we have, you know, we're open and um, that we do listen to others' opinions or we do look at decisions that we have to make in the business world from all sides. And yet I think if we do the reflective practice, we start to realize. And when I look back at my biases, I would suggest that, of course, the number one priority in making a lot of the decisions around um, the production of our, our merchandise was obviously based on profit, and that was the the bottom line, Um, you know, what was the price. And I think now I realize that I have to assess my own biases and where those came from and how my background um, will inform my view of the world. And this is something that I work, again, with the students on is having, you know, contextualizing, having context, understanding multiculturalism, understanding business practices around the world, understanding that there are, um, there is a, a triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit that can be achieved where one doesn't necessarily have to supersede the other. Um, but I think in terms of, of dealing with them, you first have to recognize them. I think it's like anything. Um, until you recognize that you have a perspective and you work on your own biases, when you do that, and it's an ongoing process, I think then it is somewhat um, more comfortable to see them in other people and to maybe address them in a respectful way through a conversation to try and um, have everyone thinking in the most enlightened way, if you will. Without attacking. Yes, mm-hmm. it does. Without it, without attacking. You're only yeah. saying that because anybody yeah. else want to comment on this before I go into uh, the top another topic with Emily? Anybody th- thoughts on this? Mark, well, Sharon. Yeah, well, I just want to say that uh, I'm pr- pretty aware of my biases. Of course, the worst biases are the ones you're not aware of. But uh, <laughs> I try to read at least one book a year that's completely contrary to my point of view. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. That's good education. The the way place I want to go next, interestingly enough, is a, a point, a talking point from Emily Moy, and it's critical thinking is learned. People develop the skill of thinking in a coherent and structured manner in high school and college. And then Emily adds, it can train them to break down a problem, evaluate options, make sound decisions in life and work, and talking about the thought process. Now, Emily, before you go into that, I have to mention that we've got a listener who just 
just emailed me, which doesn't happen too often. Uh, his name is Stephen, and he said, all of this talk of critical thinking suggests that the education many people are getting, not just in America, has been very inadequate. And he adds, in my long career, I've lived in four countries besides the U.S., two Europe, two Eastern Asia, and it's clear to me that no country I've lived in does this well, but neither can mass education be expected to do it. We need to travel widely, speak foreign languages, be challenged for years. It's not a quick fix with a few seminars or a mass level. Wow. Thank you, Stephen. I hope you're still listening. Uh, Emily, you want to talk about your observation on learning to think critically from high school or before? What's your thought? Um, yes, definitely. Um, I, you know, I think more and more I'm seeing that um, the critical thinking process begins even earlier now. Um, I have kids in um, lower school, I, I guess one's in third grade going into fourth, the other one's going, into, going from fifth to sixth, and I'm just seeing that it starts with some of the math that they're doing, so training their minds to take a step-by-step approach at looking at all at the problem and trying to understand what formula they're supposed to be using, what you know, what method they're sh- they should be applying, and it, it, I think it's going to help them train their brains to evaluate what's going on, what the, understand the context, and hopefully help them give them some structure to make decisions. So I, I'm hoping that you know starting a little earlier will help them. And and to what Stephen's point. Um, it's true. It's you know I I spent some time going to school in Hong Kong um, in the Hong Kong school system, and then I went to a British school system within Hong Kong, and then of course I grew up in the U.S. and went to different public and private schools within the U.S. and and it's interesting to see that um, I think earlier on when I was growing up. We do have a lot of different um, methodologies that we're, we're, we've been taught and to how to think, um, more so in the traditional Asian way of education. We were told this is how you have to think, <laughs> this is the structure, and you, you go with that, um, and it will help you later on in life. But that's not always the case. I think in the U.S., People have more flexibility to think differently. Um, we're given some framework, but you know, um, it, it, it's not as structured as we'd like it to be. But well, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. You, uh, yeah, I was going to say the uh, the higher up you go in education, um, the the more opportunities you have to learn to think critically. So in college, and then of course um, in my master's program, I. I I think that that really helped train me to um, to do what I do today, which is you know um, in, serve well in the the world of analytics. Emily, also, thank you. And you know what? Are, I, go ahead, Sharon. I want to yeah. move into the into the crystal ball predictions round. But Sharon, give okay. me your comment, and then we're going to use this as the segue into what do you predict for the year 2020? Will we be better in terms of critical thinking skills okay. at what age level in the workplace? But go ahead, Sharon. Quick yeah, comment, please. There are please. a lot of moves afoot to to try to remedy this and to integrate critical thinking in the school system. Our program, I have. Um, people from preschool teachers up to post-secondary teachers who are trying to learn how to infuse critical thinking in all their curriculum, and so this this is going on, and things are things are I think improving and moving in the right direction there. 
Good. I like that optimism. Let's dial back all the way back to Dr. Mark Battersby. Mark, I can give us, we got six minutes to close the show. I'm going to give you exactly one minute on the clock to give me your predictions for where will we be if we had this conversation again in the year 2020, six years from now, what would we be saying about it? We'd be saying, wow, it's really improved or that wasn't such a good idea in the first place. Mark, what do you predict? Give me a full minute, please. Go ahead. Well, um, uh, critical thinkers should be very careful about making predictions. So I'm uh, going to say... Touche. Touche. I deserve I, that. I, I know yes. in, in British Columbia here, there's a revision of the curriculum. It always makes me nervous when the school system gets a hold of an idea. What they end up doing with it often is fairly unsatisfactory. But uh, I think that this widespread talk uh, and celebration of critical thinking may well eventually lead to enhanced uh, programs uh, I, I agree with Emily we can we could there's a lot we can do at the uh, elementary and the k-12 system uh, this is not something that requires uh, uh, that should start or even needs to start at a secondary or post-secondary level mm-hmm. and uh, I you know I think all this talk uh, will, could well eventually lead to enhanced uh, educational structures that did produce uh, more critical thinkers but that's uh, probably that's more a hope than a prediction. Uh, well, we'll take it. We will gladly take it, Dr. Sharon Balin. And th- Sharon, thanks for soldiering through. You're not feeling well. You sounded wonderful, I must tell you. So, Sharon, what do you predict? What do you see in the next six years? Give me a minute, please. Okay, well, I think about Mark's hope. Uh, being an optimist, Mark's hope is my prediction. Um, and that is that I think um, there there is uh, definitely some realization of the importance of critical thinking, but not just that, some actual very productive kinds of of um, uh, activities going on that that for promoting critical thinking. For example, um, we have colleagues who are involved in a very major curriculum revision pro- process. Actually, I- internationally, they consult with schools and revise curricula right from from kindergarten up to post secondary to try to infuse critical thinking into the existing curriculum. So it's not just a um, you add on some critical thinking, but how do you deal with the with the, the normal content of schooling in a way that promotes critical thinking. And so I'm going to be an optimist and say that's going to continue, and um, we'll, um, we'll still be talking about this, but perhaps the, the level will be much improved. I think we will all appreciate that. Shirley Calla, what do you see six years from now? I'll give you one minute. Go. I think um, I just would add that I, there's such a buzz right now about design thinking and creative mm. thinking. All mm-hmm. kinds of businesses want their employees to think creatively and innovatively, and we see it in educational programs. Um, we are starting to see it immersed in K-12, to but a lot at post-secondary, and not just business schools, all kinds of programs. Having a creative background, critical thinking is absolutely crucial to creativity. Um, the generation of ideas have to be assessed thoroughly, unbiased for the benefit of the company or the target market that you're working with. So I see an evolution of critical thinking enmeshed really, really closely with design thinking or creative thinking as well. And I think that they're very critically associated, if you will. Um, And I I see them evolving more and uh, becoming more uh, intertwined. Um, But I think they have to be explicit first so that we can understand them. And I think that's where we are right now. Thank you very much. Emily Moy, I saved one minute for you. Go ahead. Predictions. Okay, great. Yes, I would also agree with um, what Shirley just said. But it, in general, just because there's so much information out there, um, I, I just think that people are becoming more overwhelmed. And if we don't have 
more structure in how we um, use this information, how we inundate it with it, and how we make better decisions, um, we're going to be in trouble. So I think there's going to be a stronger appreciation for people with critical thinking skills. Um, we're seeing that now, right, in terms of job search. You see people, mm-hmm. uh, companies wanting data scientists, people that actually know what to do with data, that know how to think critically, that they can apply that structure and mix sense out of the madness of all this data. So um, I think there'll be great appreciation for folks like Mark and Shirley and um, Sharon. (laughs) Thank you very much. And guess what? I have one bonus question. I need a yes or no answer from each of you before I close the show because I've got 60 seconds to get out of here. Question is, will millennials embrace critical thinking and bring it to the forefront of corporate thinking and training and the future? Yes or no? Mark? Sure. Okay. Sharon? Um, Yeah, I'll say Yes. <laughs> uh, not sure there. We're on the fence. And Shirley? Don't answer yes or no questions. Shirley? I know, I know. Sure. I'm going to say a hopeful yes. Hopeful yes. And Emily, yes or no? Yes. Oh, I like that. Guess what? I want to say a special thank you to a very charming and interesting panel. Thank you so much, Dr. Mark Battersby. Thank you, Dr. Sharon Balin. Thank you, Shirley Calla. Thank you, Emily Moy. And Malcolm Kimberlin has been tweeting at hashtag SAP Radio. Thank you to Brad and the Business Channel team. Coming up next Wednesday, it's Coffee Break with Game Changers right here, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Business Channel. Interesting topic, the future of business, changing the game through simplification. We're going to have as my special guest, David Fowler from SAP who was the sponsor of our recently Stop for the Summer series called The Future of Business with Game Changers. So we're putting Dave Fowler in the hot seat. We're going to put him in the center of an interesting panel. And guess what? I have a call to action for all of you. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. This is Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another live edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers presented by SAP. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.